Amen. At this time, children, you are dismissed for Children's Church. Everyone else, go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. This morning, we're going to make our way through verses 1 through 20 of Daniel chapter 11. And we're going to see again that God is sovereign over the nation. So Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. God is sovereign over the nation. Now, we continue in this text and vision. Let me kind of remind you of the general context of chapters 10, 11, and 12. Remember that it was in chapter 10 that Daniel was there on the brink of the Tigris River when all of a sudden he entered into a vision where he saw the Son of Man. He saw the Messiah who is to come in his time, who has come in our time. He saw the second person of the Trinity, the Son of Man, hovering over the bank of the Tigris River. And then all of a sudden, an angel begins to come and speak to him, most likely the angel Gabriel. Remember in chapter 10 is where the Lord sort of pulls back the curtains, if you will, and gives Daniel and therefore us a little glimpse of what is taking place spiritually behind the scenes. And so that's the setting of the vision all throughout chapter 10. Well, then in chapter 11, what we're going to begin to get into this morning is the actual vision. Chapter 10 is all just sort of setting the scene of what's going on. And it's in chapter 11 that the angel begins to actually tell Daniel what was written in the word of truth. He begins to speak the vision to Daniel. And it takes us all the way through chapter 11 into chapter 12. where We're going to get the conclusion of the vision and the conclusion of the book of Daniel. If everything goes according to plan, we're going to finish this this uh, this book, not this Sunday, but not the next, but the next. We've got three more services, three more Sundays, if you will, in the book of Daniel as we see all of it then come to a, to a close. Now, this is one of the most amazing and the most difficult sections in the book of Daniel. And honestly, it's one of the most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture. The reason that it is so amazing is because of the incredible detail that the angel that the prophecy goes into as he is telling this prophecy to Daniel. Now, in order for us to see just how amazing it is then... We have to get into the details of the text and the details of the vision so that we can see how this vision has already been fulfilled historically. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to dive into the details of the text, the details of the vision, which means... That we're going to dive into some history. We're going to talk about some people. We're going to talk about some dates. And I'll be honest with you. At the end of the sermon. You may feel like you've sat through more of a history lesson. Than a sermon. Which makes this a very difficult text to preach. But it's a text that I think is worthy to be preached. And a text that I want us to see. The goal by the way. At the end of the day. Is not that you would be able to go home. And tell someone about the history of Israel during this time. The goal is not that you would become somehow wiser in your world ancient history and that you would know dates and people. The goal of the text, the goal of the sermon is that at the end of the day, you would sit back and you would look in amazement at our God and you would again say, God is sovereign. Amen? Amen. 
He is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign over all things. And God is sovereign even over the little details that he was able to talk about and foretell hundreds of years before they actually came to be. And that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. So here Daniel has received a vision concerning Israel's future. Excuse me, Israel's future that demonstrates God's sovereignty over the nations. And in the text, we're going to see God's sovereignty over the nations demonstrated in two ways. Now, the outline, I, I'm going to tell you up front, I, I took this from Dr. Aiken and his commentary, so credit goes to Dr. Aiken, not to me. Difficult text to break down, and so once I, I looked at what Dr. Aiken had done, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to do it any better than that, so I'll just steal it and give him credit for it. Amen? That's what I did. So, number one, God raised up the nations of Persia and Greece according to his purpose and plan. Let me say it again. God raised up the nations of Persia and Greece according to his purpose and plan. Now, let's jump into the text now. Let's read verses 1 through 4. We're going to pause, and then we're going to go through the text a little bit at a time to try to keep us all on the same page as much as possible. So, let's jump in. Chapter 11, verse 1. Before we start reading, let me remind you that chapter 11, verse 1 and following is Gabriel's words as he speaks to Daniel. So this is not Daniel speaking. This is Gabriel speaking to Daniel as a continuation of chapter 10. As a matter of fact, let's jump back into chapter 10, verse 20, so that we kind of pick up the context moving into the chapter. Verse 20 of chapter 10. Then he, the angel, Gabriel said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, Michael, in the context. Verse 2, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise or shall arise in Persia, and a fourth king shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides him. All right, let's pause, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, as we come to this text, we first of all just acknowledge your sovereignty over all things. Lord, this far into the book of Daniel, we have clearly seen that you are sovereign over all things. Lord, we have certainly seen that you are sovereign over the nations, that you bring nations up, you bring nations down according to your purpose and plan. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning as we go through this text, Lord, that we would just see that affirmation again, that we would see your sovereignty. And Lord, seeing your sovereignty in the past would remind us that you are sovereign at this moment and you will be sovereign for all of eternity future. And so, Lord, I pray that this text would cause us to put more of our faith and trust in you. Lord, I also pray that you give us clarity. 
Lord, there's a lot of details in this text that we want to try our best to understand. So, Lord, I pray that we would have clarity, that we would understand to the best of our abilities. But, Lord, that we would not get so lost in the details that we lose the overall meaning of the text itself. And so, Lord, we're walking a fine line. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. And I pray that you would speak through me clearly, that you would anoint me through your Holy Spirit, and that you would be glorified now in the text. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, number one, God raised up the nations of Persia and Greece according to his purpose and plan. Now, as I just mentioned, verse one of chapter 11 is actually a continuation of what Gabriel was telling Daniel back in chapter 10. So what we find here is, is Gabriel is finishing up his sentence in chapter 11, verse one, and he reminds Daniel that as for me in the first year of Darius, the meeting, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now the him in the context is Michael. Now, if you'll remember back to last week, our mind was sort of blown as God sort of pulled back that curtain and we begin to see the spiritual warfare that was taking on all around us and that was taking place here concerning God's people. And remember, Gabriel has been saying that me and Michael are fighting against the princes of Persia and soon to be the prince of Greece. Remember in the context, that phrase, princes, spoke of demonic Forces that were being fought against in the spiritual realm, spiritual warfare is taking place. And what Daniel, or excuse me, Gabriel says to Daniel is that in the first year of Darius's reign, remember Darius is also Cyrus. In the first year of Darius's reign, I had to come and strengthen Michael, who was still fighting against the spiritual forces of wickedness and evil there, the prince of Persia. Now, this, remember, according to the beginning of chapter 10, don't get lost. Stay with me. I know there's a lot going on. But at the beginning of chapter 10, the setting of the vision is in the third year of Darius's or Cyrus's reign in Persia. So just historically, remember, here's the overall context. Remember, Daniel and his companions were taken into captivity in Babylon almost 70 years prior to this vision in chapters 10 and 11. And after they had been in captivity for about 68 years, remember that Persia comes in and overthrows Babylon, taking control of the region and control of the Israelites. And that is the first year of Darius's reign. And so when Gabriel says that he had to help Michael in the first year of Darius's reign, it immediately reminds us that, wait a minute, there were some really significant things that took place in the first year of Darius's reign that Michael and Gabriel spiritually behind the scenes are allowing and causing to come about. So here's some of the significant things that took place concerning the nation of Israel. One, Babylon was overthrown. That was hugely significant because, remember, it was Babylon that God had used to bring the nation of Israel into captivity as a judgment for their sin. But as Jeremiah had prophesied, that captivity would last 70 years. Then it would come to an end and that God would judge the Babylonians for their harsh, wicked treatment of Israel during that time period. So guess what God does? God does exactly what he says he's going to do. 
God uses Persia to overthrow Babylon and to bring judgment down upon the Babylonians. And therefore, God ended the captivity for the Israelites. Something else significant, though, happened in the first year of Cyrus or Darius's reign. It was Cyrus who decreed in the first year of his reign that Israel was no longer in captivity. They were free to return home to the promised land. And so that's significant, amen? And that's what God was doing. Thus, God of his sovereignty was raising up nations according to his purpose and plan. And even though Satan and his demons were apparently fighting against it, they could not stop what God was doing. Amen? Amen. Again, I know this is mind-boggling because we get to see behind the curtain that normally remains closed for us. But what we see is that there are spiritual things taking place that are impacting what we see and experience here in our earthly reality. And that's exactly what verse 1 is reminding us of. Gabriel's just telling Daniel that in the first year of Darius' reign, I was helping Michael, your prince, your angel who's over Israel, defeat and go against the demons that were over Persia. And then he begins to jump in to the vision of verse 2. So once we get into the vision of chapters 11 and 12, we're going we're gonna to look at this text and there are going to be times in the the, 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 the vision of chapter 11, especially when we get into chapter 12, there's going to be periods of this vision where it looks like Satan is winning. And I want to remind you that he is absolutely not winning at any point in the vision. Okay? Now, we're not going to see a lot of that this morning, but next week and the week after, there's going to be points that we're going to go, wait a minute, who's winning here? And I just want you to remember, God is sovereign over the nations, and God is winning over Satan. Amen? Matter of fact, thankfully, in our history where we stand, we stand after the cross, and we know God's already won. Amen? It's already over. Satan's already been defeated. We're just waiting for the finality of that event that's actually going to be prophesied and talked about once we get into chapter 11 and chapter 12 at the end. And so, thus God is sovereign. Raising up nations according to his purposes and plan. And we begin to see that take place in chapter 11, verse 2. And so here's what the angel says to Daniel. He says, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. Now, remember, the vision is picking up now where Daniel currently is in history. So it's picking up in Daniel, Daniel's present day. Daniel is three years into the reign of Darius, the first Persian king. And the angel says that there's going to be three more. So we've got Darius. Look at the real quick. Darius first. Three more are going to come. And then after the third, a fourth after Darius, which gets us to five, I know we're already going, what? Right? A fifth king is going to be king over Persia, and that fifth king is going to be great. He's going to be rich. He's going to rule with a lot of power, and he is actually going to have so much power that he's going to try to attack the country and the empire of Greece. Notice what it says then as we jump in to verse three. Then a mighty, excuse me, uh, in, in verse two, that this, this, uh, this, he says, I mean, hold on, tell you the truth. Three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth king shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now, again, be amazed at the accuracy of the vision. 
History proves the vision is true, as three kings followed Cyrus. Candius, Smyrtus, and Darius I, followed then by the great Xerxes I, the great fourth king mentioned in this text. Now, interestingly enough, Tad, myself, Carrie, Noah, David have all been to the former palace of Darius I and Xerxes I, which is in modern-day Persepolis, which David's got a picture of, and he's about to pop up behind it. So there is the tombs of Darius and Xerxes, right? And that's in modern-day Iran. Again, we've been there. The only reason I show you that is because what that helps us see is that history is true, right? That, that literally happened, and there are the people who no longer are alive, but there's where they're buried when this text was being prophesied, this is what was going to come about. And so what God tells Daniel is that right now you've got the first king, but three more are going to show up, followed by a fourth king that's really going to be the fifth king, Count Darius of Persia, and he's going to lead the nation against Greece. The problem is Xerxes the Great is going to lose that battle. Not only is he going to lose the battle against Greece, but he is going to infuriate the empire of Greece. And that is going to give way to what we see transpire in verse 3. All right, you can take a picture down, David. Thank you, man. Actually, look at the picture, but I'm giving David credit. All right. I notice what it has in verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Now, verse 3 speaks to another great king that's going to come from Greece that we've talked about already many times so far, one that is famous in history, and it is Alexander the Great, right? And remember, he rises to power with a hatred of the Persian Empire. Why? Because Xerxes I tried to invade the nation of Greece. And so Greece hated Persia, and so when Alexander the Great rose to power, he was infuriated with Persia, and so he marches across the known world, he overtakes the empire of Persia, he is great, he is swift, he is vast, he takes over the known world at the time, only to die unexpectedly at the age of 33. And then we see what happens in verse 4. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, right? Not according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked away and given to others besides him. In other words, his own children don't get his kingdom because all of his children were murdered and his four generals who ruled with him divided his kingdom into four parts. And none of the four parts ever became as great as Alexander had led the nation of Greece. And so what we see then transpire is God has now raised up the nations of Persia. He's raised up the nations of Greece according to his purpose and his plans in dealing with the nation of Israel. But just as God brought them up, what does God do? God brings them down. And he does it according to his sovereignty. He does it according to his authority. And he does it according to his purpose and his plans. He used the nation of Persia. He then brought them down. He used the nation of Greece. Then he brought them down. God was and is sovereign over the nations, even using their evil deeds to accomplish his great purposes and plans. And so what we see first is that God raised up the nations of Persia and Greece according to his purpose and plan. And then secondly, 
God raised up the nations of Egypt and Syria according to his purpose and plan. Again, credit to Dr. Aiken for the outline. Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to jump into verses 5 through 20. And I'm just going to tell you up front, there is a lot of details in this part of the text. There's a lot that as you read this first time through, you go, what? Say that again? What does that mean? And so I'm going to do my best to help us walk through these verses a little bit at a time, chunk at a time, to make sure we understand what's being said. And then what we're going to do is after we see what's been written, what's been foretold, what's been prophesied, then we're going to look to history to see if history has confirmed the accuracy of the prophecy. Does that make sense? So we keep in mind the whole time that what's written that we're going to read in verses 5 through 20 is not someone telling us what did happen. It's someone telling us what is going to happen. Right? And it only matters if what's going to happen actually did happen. And so we're going to compare what's going to happen in the text to what did happen in history to make sure that the text God's prophecy is accurate. Again, don't try to, don't try to write all the names down, dates down. Don't worry about that. This is what you're asking. Is God right? Was the prophecy true? Is he therefore sovereign over all things? That's what we're going to answer. That's what we're going to see. Pick up with me in verses 5 and 6. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. And some years they, excuse me, and after some years they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement or an alliance. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up in her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Again, we say, what? Well, let's get into the details of the text and let's figure out what happened historically. So, verses 5 through 12 are going to describe for us the period of the Ptolemaic dominance in the region. Now, here's what we have to understand. After Alexander's kingdom was divided, there were two main kingdoms that came from the division of the one massive kingdom. The kingdom in the north, which is in modern-day Syria, was the Seleucid Empire. And the kingdom in the south, modern-day Egypt, was the Ptolemaic Empire. And the problem is that if you look on a map today, and you find Egypt, and you find Syria, you're going to find this little country in between the two known as what? Israel. And so as Egypt and Syria constantly and consistently battle for power and dominance over the region... Israel is both geographically and literally trapped in the middle, basically going from one dominion of rule to the other dominion of rule. But they themselves are not really an independent nation at this point for all practices and purposes because they're basically being controlled by whoever's in charge of the time, Egypt or Syria. Right? And so it's these two kingdoms, empires, the Ptolemaic Egypt Empire, the Seleucid Syrian Empire, they fight. Israel's stuck in the middle. And so in the first 12 verses, verses 5 through 12, we see a time of Egyptian or Ptolemaic dominance. So verse 5 foretells then of the conflict between Ptolemy I and Seleucus I. So the king of the south, who would be strong, is Ptolemy I, who ruled over Egypt. One of his commanders, the prince in verse 5, was actually Seleucus I. However, 
So Lucius left Egypt, returning to the northern kingdom, Syria. He became greater than Ptolemy and actually ruled over the northern kingdom of Syria, known as the Seleucid Empire. Now, that empire actually became the largest of the four empires that Alexander had left, and it comprised of all of Babylon, Syria, and Medea. Again, don't worry about all that information, but here's what we need to see. The text said that there was going to be a king in the south, and one of his commanders was going to become greater and stronger than he was ruling a greater empire. That's exactly what happened historically. Ptolemy I ruled over Egypt. One of his commanders was Seleucus I. He left Egypt, went to Syria, and became the ruler over Syria. And Syria grew to actually the largest of what was left of Alexander's empire. Right Now, they fought. They, they had a conflict between the two. But as we see in verse 6, they decided that they would make an, a treaty, an agreement eventually. So in verse 6... We see then the foretell of the conflict between Ptolemy II and Antiochus II. Ptolemy II, Egypt, Antiochus II, there in Syria. Now, the conflict between these two empires continued throughout the life of Ptolemy I. And his son, Ptolemy II, inherited the conflict and the battle. But verse 6, remember, speaks to an alliance that was made between Ptolemy II and Antiochus II, whereby Ptolemy, the king of the south, Egypt, would send his daughter, who historically was Bernice, to Antiochus II, king of the south, to be his wife, so that her son could be the heir to the throne as a part of the alliance. So here's what happens, right? Ptolemy II, Egypt, Antiochus II, Syria. They're fighting. They finally come to a treaty, and they decide, here's how we're going to seal the treaty. Ptolemy II, you send your daughter to marry me. When your daughter marries me, that will seal the alliance. Right? And then when we have a son, he'll be my heir, and he'll be your heir for your daughter, and he'll be the one who will rule over the Syrian Empire. Thus, this treaty will last, and this treaty will endure forever. Sounds like a good plan, right? <clears throat> I mean, you know, the daughter's kind of stuck in the middle, but sounds like a good plan on paper, right? Right? Except there's a problem. It's a big problem. Antiochus II is already married. He's married to a strong woman named Laodice. She's not only a strong woman, she doesn't like the idea. Can you imagine? Right? So, Bernice comes, marries Antiochus II, they have a child, the strong woman who was his first wife, Laodice, decides, that's not going to work for me. So she kills them all. She murders Antiochus II, she murders Bernice, and she murders their son. She kills them all. So that her son wouldn't lose the throne, she reigns as queen in his power until he is old enough to to become the actual king of the Syrian Empire. Well, what does it say in verse 6? After some years, they'll make an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she will not retain the strength of her arm. Why? Because she's going to get murdered. He and his arm shall not endure. Why? Because they're both going to get murdered. But she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. In other words, all of them are going to get erased. Because they're all going to get murdered, right? And so again, the, the, the story is interesting, right? But what's amazing 
is that God told us this would happen hundreds of years before it actually happened. Again, this reads as if it's telling us history. But it's this prophecy foretelling the future. And it proves again God's sovereignty. So, in verses 7 through 9, it foretells the conflict between Ptolemy III and then Seleucus II. Now understand, Ptolemy III is the son of Ptolemy II and the brother of Bernice who was murdered by Laos. Are you got it? Clear as mud, right? Ptolemy III, son of Ptolemy II, but he is the brother of Bernice who was murdered by Laodicea. Seleucus II is the son of Laodicea, the woman who murdered Bernice so that her son could rule. So to avenge his sister's death, Ptolemy III mounted a great army. He came against Syria with vengeance from 246 to 241 B.C. Ptolemy III in Egypt eventually defeats Syria, killing Laodicea and looting many of the temples and their valuables. In 240 B.C., Ptolemy III and Seleucus II entered into a treaty. And verse 9 tells us that Seleucus II, the king of the north, came against Ptolemy III again, but apparently thought better of it and quickly then returned home. That's what history tells us. Let's see what Scripture tells us. Look at me now in verse 9. And from a branch from her, Bernice's roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Again, what we see, we see that the prophecy is fulfilled in history. In other words, we see that God's prophecy was completely and totally true. So then we get into verses 10 through 12, which foretells the conflict between Ptolemy IV and Antiochus III. Notice what it says in verses 10 and 12. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through. And again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. He shall, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hands. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart will be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. So that's what scripture tells us is going to happen. Let's look now at what history tells us did happen. So Seleucus II died, leaving his sons as kings. Seleucus III and Antiochus III. Seleucus III ruled for three years before he was murdered. And then his brother Antiochus III came to power. Antiochus III invaded Palestine in 219 BC, which was under Egyptian rule at the time, causing the king of the south... Ptolemy IV to come against Antiochus III in Syria. Both armies were massive, but the king of the south overtook the king of the north, killing thousands, just as verse 12 foretells. We're also told in the text in history confirms that Ptolemy, because of his victory, became exceedingly prideful. And because of his pride, he began to grow in arrogance. He began to grow in pride. And let's just remind ourselves, what does God typically do with those who grow in arrogance and pride? 
he typically brings them down. Right? And so what we see in verse 12 is he killed thousands, he won the battle, but the victory would not last. And that brings us to verses 13 through 19, which foretell now of the shifting of power from the Egyptians to the Syrians. So verses 12, or 5 through 12, I'll talk about how the Ptolemaic dominance, the Egyptian dominance of that period of time. In verse 13, the power shifts. And the power shifts because Ptolemy's arrogance after winning the battle. And so, here's what we did see in verse 13. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with great with a great army and abundant supplies. Now, verses 13 through 17 are going to foretell the conflict between Ptolemy the fifth and Antiochus the third. Again, I know there's a lot of Ptolemy's and a lot of Antiochus's don't, don't worry about that. Let's see what the text says. Verse 14, In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the, vi- and, excuse me, and the violent among your own people, Daniel's talking, I mean, excuse me, Gabriel's talking to Daniel, so his own people would be the Israelites caught in the middle. So the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come, and throw up siege works, and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. He shall stand in the glorious land, that's Israel, he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, but he shall bring terms of an agreement or a treaty and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Again, let's see what history tells us happened. The victory of verse 12 was a short-lived victory. For the king of the south, Ptolemy the fourth will be filled with pride, and 15 years later, Antiochus III will lead another great army against the south, and this time the north will win. This happened historically after Ptolemy IV died and left the kingdom to his son, who was about five years old at the time. So Antiochus III saw that as a weakness. He takes advantage, and he leads a great army against Egypt, and this time he wins. Verse 14 describes the Jews who aided Syria in the attack only to be defeated by Egypt before Egypt eventually falls to Syria. Verse 16 describes the king of the north, Antiochus III, finally taking control of the glorious land, Egypt, which is exactly what happened historically. And then he was forced a treaty with Egypt, sending his daughter, Cleopatra, to become wife of Ptolemy V in hopes that she would help him keep dominance over Egypt. The plan, however, failed because Cleopatra loved her husband, who knew that was possible, and Egypt, and therefore it shall not stand or be to his advantage, as we see in verse 17. Again, fascinating story. Amen? I go back and read the history, and you're like, it's like a soap opera. It is is mind-boggling, it's crazy, but what's more amazing is that God foretold what would happen in exact amazing (laughs) detail well before it happened. Unbelievable. At this time, by the way, as God's telling Daniel what's going to happen through the angel Gabriel, remember that Daniel is standing in the third year of Darius's reign. 
In other words, the Persian Empire is still in its infancy. The Persian Empire has just come about. It's three years in. These events that are going to be transpiring are going to be after the fall of the Persian Empire, after the fall of Alexander the Great, after his kingdom has been divided into four parts. It's describing that conflict between the South and the North. This is not history. This is prophecy. But it's so accurate that it serves well as history, right? Because we're able to follow the story and see exactly what happened. And that's exactly what transpires. Syria begins to dominate Egypt. Syria finally forces Egypt into a treaty. And then Ptolemy V decides that he will keep his dominance over Egypt by sending his daughter, Cleopatra, to marry the Syrian, the Egyptian king. And so she goes there to marry him. Her dad's thinking, as long as my daughter is there reigning as queen, I will always have a hand in what takes place. But unfortunately, Cleopatra loved her husband. I know, it's hard to imagine, guys, right? Cleopatra loved her husband more than she loved her father. She ended up loving Egypt more than she loved Syria. And so as we see in verse 17, that uh, verse 17 at the end, it shall not stand or end up being to his advantage. He just loses his daughter, right? It's a good try, but, but it didn't work. And so then we pick up in verse 18. Verses 18 through 19 foretell of Antiochus III and his conflict and ultimate defeat by Rome. I promise we're getting to the end. All right, look at what happens in verses 18 and 19. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So according to history, after Antiochus III forced an alliance and treaty with Ptolemy V in Egypt, he decided that he was going to now turn his attention towards the coastland and try to start winning land and territory there. So after forcing his way there, turns his attention to the coast, he does capture many lands. However, he goes too far and he angers Rome. Rome then sends a commander that defeats him and humiliates him by killing his 70,000 troops and defeating his 70,000 troops with a mere 30,000 troops. Because who knew at the time the Roman Empire was really, really good at war? Right? They were going to end up becoming the dominant empire of the day. It just hadn't happened historically yet. But Rome defeats Antiochus III, not by one of their emperors, but just by one of their commanders. And he's Antiochus III. He's defeated. Rome forces him into a treaty where he has to then pay Rome an annual tax for his own safety and their safety, which, guess what? Angers all of those in the Seleucid, the Seleucid Empire in Syria. So when Antiochus III comes home in defeat, in humility, running for his life, he makes it to his hometown. His hometown welcomes him in 180 BC by murdering him. He's killed by an angry mob who are mad that they have to pay these hefty taxes to Rome, to destroy their economy, and so they murder him in the streets. So then, verse 20, then foretells of Seleucus IV. Who, uh, in his death, making the way for where we're going to get to next week, Antiochus the Fourth. So we're going to read verse twenty, and then we're going to be done. Okay, so we're almost, almost at the end. Let's look back now. Let's look at verses nineteen and twenty. 
Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land. He shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall rise in his place one who shall send an exactor or a tax collector tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. So verse 20 tells us of what's going to happen, and his history tells us what did happen. Verse 24 tells of Seleucus IV and his death, making the way then for Antiochus IV. Antiochus III's son, Seleucus IV, became ruler of the north, Syria, after his father was murdered. He was left having to pay that hefty tax to Rome, so he sent out a tax collector to collect taxes. His rule didn't last long, however, for he would die, notice in the text, not in anger or in battle, but he was actually poisoned to death by his own tax collector, possibly with the aid of Antiochus IV. Now, I just go. All right, history lesson is over. All right? Now, I know you feel like you just sat through a history lesson. My children are bored out of their mind. They're actually angry right now because the deal is you don't do school on Sunday, and they just felt like they did school. All right? I get it. I understand. But listen, that was the point. The point was I wanted you to feel like you sat through a history lesson because I wanted you to feel like, oh, my goodness. How in the world was this history given so accurately? And then I want to remind you that this wasn't history. Prophecy. This wasn't someone looking back at what did happen. This was God looking forward to what was going to happen, telling Daniel and therefore the nation of Israel what was going to happen as all this unfolds. And the amazement of the prophecy is the detailed accuracy of the prophecy that proves to us and reminds us that our God is sovereign. He raises up nations as sees as he sees fit according to his purposes and according to his plans. And what were his purposes and plans? Well, remember that God was using these nations to judge Israel for their sin and to prepare the way for his son. Remember that this long prophecy that begins in chapter 11 and isn't going to end until chapter 12 is ultimately going to end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what this prophecy is going to foretell is how God is going to ultimately destroy all of his enemies. And remember that God's greatest enemy isn't a nation, and it isn't even Satan or the Antichrist, all of whom will be defeated. The biggest, uh, the biggest enemy is sin and death. And sin and death, by the way, have already been defeated now in our history by Jesus who died on the cross. To pay for our sin. By Jesus who three days later rose from the dead. Having overcome death and the grave. Amen. And so what we have now. Looking forward to the rest of this prophecy. That will be given in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12. Is just further confirmation that God is sovereign. And ultimately God is going to send Jesus back. To establish once and for all. His eternal kingdom. Of which remember. We have been invited to be a part of If we will put our faith and our trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, we are on this side of these events. We can look back and see how sovereign our God is, how accurate this prophecy is. We can also look back and see the first coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. We can read of His perfect and sinless life. 
We can read of his sacrificial death on the cross, whereby he died as a payment for our sin. We can read and have confidence in his resurrection, because not only is it scripture, but it's historically proven by the eyewitness accounts of many during his days. And we can have confidence that our God is real because our God makes himself known to us. Amen? Amen. You know how I know that my God is real? It's because my God lives in my heart. My God speaks to me and moves me and interacts with me. My God's not some statue that sits silently on a shelf. My God is inside of me, living and moving and working with me every day of my life. And that helps me to be confident knowing that my God one day is going to return. And he's going to take me to his everlasting home when he establishes his eternal kingdom. And we've all been invited to be a part of that if we will put our faith and trust in Jesus. As Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, and I hope you're getting tired of hearing me say, because once you get tired of hearing me say it, you'll commit it to memory yourself. Amen? But we've been invited, right? We've been invited to repent of our sins, to believe in who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross. And we've been invited to what? Follow Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, if you're listening online, and you've never surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know that today can be the day that you repent of your sins. Today can be the day that you acknowledge, I am a sinner. And I need God's forgiveness for my sin. Today can be the day that you believe in who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God. And that you believe that he did what Scripture says he did. He came to this earth. He lived that perfect life. He died on the cross only to victoriously raise from the dead. And today can be the day that unlike the demons mentioned in chapter 10, unlike Satan, whom we know is real, you commit to following Jesus. Remember, the devil and the demons believe. They know who he is. What separates us from them, what separates that from genuine salvation is our commitment to following Jesus. And if you're here this morning, if you're listening online, and you've never made that commitment to follow Jesus, then in just a few moments, we're going to stand and sing our hymn of invitation. And that's your opportunity to come forward and just say, we will, I want to give my life to Jesus this morning. Maybe you've got questions and you want to come to me after service. I'd love to talk to you more about your salvation, about how you can follow Jesus. Maybe you are watching this online and, and, and your opportunity is to reach out via messenger or, or text or something like that to reach out. But no matter who it is or where we are, if you feel God speaking to your heart this morning, I want you to respond by saying yes to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy and your love for us. We thank you, Lord, for the text this morning that helps us see that you are sovereign over all things. Lord, we thank you for a text that helps us to see that you're not only sovereign, but you are victorious. And Lord, that ultimately this text and all of creation is heading towards the second coming of your son, Jesus Christ, who will come back to this earth to usher us into eternal life and into the eternal kingdom he's going to establish. Lord, we thank you for that reminder. We look forward to the time that it comes. And up until then, Lord, we pray that we will be faithful in following you. So, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not yet know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would continue to speak into their hearts. And, Lord, that during this time of invitation that we would respond according to what you're leading us to do. Lord, we love you. 
And we praise you this morning. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.